0: Um, This essay, I cut it down quite a bit, I can never do a reading without marking all over the pages, it's a wonder I can read it at all, so bear with me. Um, It's called Hand Me Down, it's about uh, the day, it's a braided essay, and we go in and out, the present time is the day of my, an oral examination. I was completing my doctorate in American and British Lit. So that's going on, and then woven in amidst that uh, are parts about a brown dress. made by my granny Fanny Ellen Salyer. And and, um, so that's what this is about. Once for two months in Crete I swam a half mile each afternoon across a bay to a smaller island where I met fishermen who told me about diving so far down for conch shells their eardrums burst in the sea. Years after that I lived beside a lake and swam across a cove each morning marking distance toward a dock and a red house with a porch swing. I've always loved swimming such complicated distances. Then in my early 30s, distances became books. So many books that by the summer of 1997, I had read upwards of 20 pages of titles in in preparation for an examination in American and British literature. During that time, I dreamed of water of swimming pools, oceans, ponds. In one dream, I was lying back on a warm river, a brown dress floating around me like a life raft. I'm wearing that dress this morning as I study myself in the mirror in a bathroom across from the conference room where my examination will be held. I imagine the day Fanny Ellen, my granny, made the dress. I imagine her hands smoothing the crinkle of pattern pieces. of her fabric came from yard sale tables or from the Mountain Mission thrift store in Paintsville where she grew up. Wear a power suit, I've been told, in regard to my exam day, but I chose this dress. And I wonder if you can tell it, the 30-some times I've hauled myself and it from town to town. I touch the frayed edge of my collar and think about how, if my granny were here with me, I'd tell her I'm not floating in all these words, I'm drowning. On my father's side, my granddaddy worked pumping gas for the Allen Kentucky Standard Oil. While on my mother's side, my grandfather, who we called Pa, was a coal miner. The women on both sides of my family were waitresses, sales clerks, homemakers. I myself didn't go to college right away, and when I did, it was to night school at Kentucky State University, where I took sociology and basic math, courses to set me on a different path than my day job as a secretary. My second semester, I had the experience that would lay the groundwork for my inner life of language. The second half of basic comp was a lit class. And I remember reading the story, Silent Snow, Secret Snow by Conrad Aiken. The professor had a goatee and eyes dazed from the grating of dozens upon thousands of essays. What, he wanted to know, does the boy really hear as he lies awake at night listening to snowfall? Dogs in cars, someone said. A postman walking, someone else said. I raised my hand. I think the boy hears his own heart beating. The professor looked at me hard as if I'd seen some manifestation of the Holy Ghost, and perhaps I had. A door swung open in my head as I for the first time glimpsed metaphor, angels making music beyond the letters on a page. I went back to work, wrote sentimental poetry that grew more narrative, opened the doors of other classrooms. Occasionally, there were moments like that one that, as Annie Dillard says, showed me I had been how I had been a bell my whole life, but never knew it until that rare moment when I was lifted and struck. The only thing I know for sure my doctoral committee will ask me is about bridge building. When I was little and we were home visiting Eastern Kentucky, we'd drive along the big sandy river and my mother would point out the spot where there used to be a swinging bridge. She'd crossed once upon a time to get to classes at Prestonsburg High School. My literary bridge could be between slave narratives and the work of the Harlem Renaissance and jazz. It could be between Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and some contemporary memoir. I hope that somewhere in there there might be time to build a bridge between the literary work I've studied for these months and my own writing life, but that bridge is hard to talk about. It is made of generations of odd-turned women, trailers up the heads of hollers, houses with the curtains always drawn, fear of all those places I have seen, the foreigner I have become. That bridge was made of me, perennial student, 30-something writer wannabe, someday me teaching novels at a tidy college. Me in my hand-me-down dress, wishing for my granny's hands to pat my back, tell me I'm okay. I was in my mid-twenties when I found the dress in Fanny Ellen's attic, a place with a ceiling bowed with rain and half a wool blanket strung across a window. Ghosts lived up there. They lived in deeds to land gone, the mouths of bisque dolls my granny played with when she was little. Ghosts lived in the bottoms of old cannon jars, in between the pages of letters from my father from the Korean War. They sang along with songs from 75 recordings of Glenn Miller. This is the story of a starry night. Ghosts nudged me as I pulled the dress out of a box and held it against me, wondering if it would fit. The dress had a pattern of tiny ladies with hats. It's brown faded from washings, bright sun on a clothesline. Loose buttonholes, roomy pockets, I could imagine my granny feeling with potato eyes and onion sets on planning days with my granddaddy who died when I was nine. Fanny Ellen and Clarence Wiley, sweethearts at 19. I'd seen photos of them sitting in a river fully clothed, their arms and knees touching could almost see her hands nodding and unnodding in the dra- brown dress's pockets as she worried about the hole in his heart that finally killed him when he was not yet 60. I wished the pockets would hold a, a lost treasure, a buffalo-headed nickel or a love letter. I wished I'd find the garnet ring Fanny Ellen lost out in the garden when it slipped off her thin-fingered hand that time when she was hoeing. I wanted to find that ring so I could wear it like a talisman. Magic was what I needed most about then. I was a lost soul, lost as any post-hippie wannabe flower child. By the time I was 15, I'd been a maid, a grocery clerk, fast food employee, working as hard as I knew how to take myself down roads as far away from home as I could get. Lost inside me was my private Axis Mundi, a main line to the mountains and the people who made me, but I didn't know it yet, and I wouldn't for many years. All I wanted right then was to reach into the brown dress's deep pockets, find the garnet ring, rub it like a genie's lamp. But the only thing I found was a good-sized hole I I later never got around to mending. One area of my exam will be magic realism, American magic realists. I have in mind Charles Brockton Brown, Spontaneous Combustion, Gene Toomer and his novel's transformative journeys between North and South, between spirit and body, poetry to prose. My favorite writers of magic, of magic are William Faulkner, William Kennedy, Leslie Marmon Silco, Louise Erdrich. I've memorized the order of people ascending to heaven in the end of Flannery O'Connor's Revelation, I know by heart the end of Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. If you surrendered to the air, you could write it. For years, a ghost has followed me down road upon road, down all the roads I've taken away from myself. For a long time, the ghost was my mother, who she who made the world one long story of clean. She vacuumed, wiped, scrubbed until her hands bled spent long afternoons locked in the bathroom, washing her face over and over, brushing her teeth until they sparkled. She vanquished the world that made her, one I would never entirely know. While she cleaned, I spent hours sitting in a recliner chair, not allowed to go outdoors, not allowed to open a cabinet or a drawer or a refrigerator. A prisoner of sorts, I escaped via reading. I read D. H. Lawrence's version of Quetzalcoatl, I read biographies biographies of Houdini, excerpts from The Golden Bough. I read about ventriloquism, clairvoyance, memorized the names of famous magicians, made up stories in which, voila, I vanished off the face of the earth. I became a ghost girl, haunted by her own loneliness, filled my diary with notes about what I wanted and what I did not have. I wrote poems full of moonlight filled up pages with drawings of my own hands. The lonely girl's ghost followed me for years. Her memory was where I lived unless I crawled back out via words. Words were my dubious magic. At one end of the conference table where we sit for my exam, I spread out my folder of notes where I have color-coded everything Red is for fire, and the room in that scene about anger and Jane Eyre. White is for the room upstairs where Jack and Anne have their tryst in All the King's Men. A green hidden room in Harriet Jacobs. Orange bedsitter in Carrie. I wonder if anyone will question me about rooms in Harriet Arnault's The Dollmaker. I have memorized a random sentence from Arnault. Demands for authenticity all too often confine marginal authors. I can almost see Gertie Neville sitting at her kitchen table, working away at her secret magic, a sculpture of the face of Christ. Fanny Ellen loved her Bible, loved a good Harlequin romance. She'd gone to what she called the Rock Cliff, a one-room school. By the time she was 70, she could still recite most of the Star-Spangled Banner in Latin. She'd always wanted to be a teacher or a nurse, but what she knew best was mercy. Mercy, she'd say, she sneezed or broke a plate. Mercy was a charm, a spell. While she was saving with her dollars, a habit learned from having been a daughter of the Great Depression, she was generous. Let's go get you something pretty, she'd say. She'd take me to the S-Mart, and make sure I had sweaters, jeans, underwear. Eat you some, she'd insist and she'd make me fried corn, green beans cooked all day with fat back. I lived with her for four years so I could attend community college, and she put up with the chaos I steeped myself in. Once after being out most of the night drinking until my head pounded, I slept the day away on her couch and woke with an afghan tucked around my backside. She gave me names I'll keep for the rest of my life. Trip around the world, double wedding ring. Nine-patch, cathedral window. Quilts were a lesson in precision, repetition, symmetry, as the patterns evolved, piece after piece, the whole of a lesson, the whole a lesson in geometry. They were history. In quilts, I saw pieces of my granddaddy's old shirts, my own outgrown dresses. She was an artist, a cloth witch, a painter of eye colors, shapes, the setup of squares. Quilts were patience, zen. I tried my hand at quilts, a hand-embroidered denim nine-patch I gave away, a moon over the mountain that years later found its way to Tennessee, to a cat bed in the home of a lost lover. By hour three of my exam, I'm bridge-building in earnest. World War I, to the pages of Jean Reese's 1949 novel, Good Morning, Midnight. I tell them about how Sasha, the central character of the novel, has difficulty taking care of herself, drinks heavily, sleeping pills, obsessions over her appearance, her longing for something she can only vaguely describe. I tell them she's adrift, that she feels most connected to her past, despite the great pain it has brought her. I soon realize that I've forgotten, really, whether I'm talking about Sasha, about Jean Reese, or whether I've somehow ended up talking about myself. As a graduate student, I worked as a landscaper, tilled, raked, planted. I'd hurry to my Faulkner class every afternoon with no time to change first. We'd talk about the Tellurian impulse the char- and the characters with their unlaced brogans, while I sat trying to hide my muddy boots and my beat up hands. I was afraid to open my mouth, afraid of theory, afraid of the adeptness and ease with language I heard around me. Eventually, I trusted my narrative poems enough to enter an MFA program. In one workshop, I was told the characters I was writing were the uh, spoke to eloquently. In another, I had a character based on my mother's father who went downtown to trade guns and knives and everybody was perplexed. They wanted to know if my grandfather was in the mafia. (laughs) In another workshop, I turned in a story with a character named Mary Ruth, who worked in a dime store. She fell in love with a guy named LT, a 40-year-old drifter who believed he'd end up as a recruit for the Cincinnati Reds. Was Mary Ruth slumming, the workshop (laughs) participants asked me. When I went back to Eastern Kentucky for visits, I hated the place and I hated myself in it. Back home was the place where my mother's father met me at the door and asked me why I didn't have a better car, why all that education wasn't working on me yet. In school again, I worked to learn more, advance more, degree by degree, but I didn't fit in much there either. I came from people who hurt one another, people who worked hard, fought harder when the bills weren't paid and there was no way to pay them. Once, at a cocktail party, I came with my rough-handed, wind-and-sunburn landscaper boyfriend, and a pretty writer in a black dress asked me confidentially if he beat me. When I went to Kentucky, I stayed with Fannie Ellen. I ate and refueled and curled up on the couch. Her favorite place was the longhouse, a building behind the house with a small kitchen where she canned in the summer. The uh, the building also had a bench with saws, vices, cans of oil from the service station where my granddaddy worked. Unnamed things were repaired in there, or more often left to the attendance of the ghosts of my ancestors. It was a workshop, too. Over the years, I've been in any number of those workshops, lectures, classes, but the ones where hands were involved were where I came from. I knew woodworkers, and I loved those shops with their dust and cedar smell, the turn vases, lamps, birdhouses. I knew potters, typesetters, blowers, bakers. I loved machine shops, garages. I loved all those places where things were tuned up, aligned. My stories, my heart's words came from places like that, and of all of it, I was vaguely ashamed. I talk that examination day about the first great American novel and Charles Brockton Brown. I talk about Brown's gothic sensibility, his tales of apparitions, enchantments, spontaneous combustion, that ventriloquism. I talk about the grande scenes, a curse on a plantation, its future generations. I talk about conjure women. I work forward until I'm talking about light at night on Harlem city streets. Hagar and Song of Solomon, the summoning of the little pieces of heart Milkman had left inside her. I build a bridge via magic from book to book. The only part of the bridge I leave out is myself. Just before I entered my doctoral program, I was traveling in Nepal, then in Thailand, finally in the reaches of the desert in Rajasthan, in India. I felt myself most cut loose from any world I'd ever claimed as my own. But I fell asleep some nights, and if I was lucky, dreamed home. I dreamed of my granny's house in Johnson County, how I used to park my Dodge Dart on the other side of the bridge that forded the creek that ran past her house. Dreamed of the flood that came once, how part and parcel of everything floated past. Tires, boards, boxes, buckets for coal and ash bottles, flotsam, jetsam, the drenched cast-off of dresses and trousers, a good-sized mule. As I slept my toss and turn sleep those nights in the desert, a million miles from from anywhere, I dreamed of Fanny Ellen, how she descended the steps of her house and waited a long time to see if I was really there, maybe, asleep and dreaming of home, all those miles and miles away, from her in that foreign country with a name she'd never heard of. She stopped just on the edge of my own sleep, my own near waking. She stood, stood still and looked at me, contrary girl, woman, wanderer, lost one. Wake up, honey, she said. Everything will be just fine. Once in a class I was teaching. We were discussing Zora Neale Hurston an African-American writer from the Harlem Renaissance, often dismissed for her use of dialect in her fiction. Rather than discussing her novel, my students and I that day tried to find words to describe writers nobody knows much about, like Hurston, underrepresented, subordinate groups, marginalized, we made lists on the board. I stood in front of my class discussing marginalization, saying nothing I completely understood. My examiners and I study one another. The clock winding down to the last minutes of our session. It's almost noon and there will be forms to sign, lunch with my examiners, glasses of wine. There will be a creative dissertation to write, a novel about my family that I disguise as fiction. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on these days, one of them asks me from the other side of the table. I'm tired, out of words, not sure, after all we've discussed, what there is left to say. I reach into my pocket one more time, hoping, not hoping, wishing my granny's garnet ring might be there after all. I find no ring, but magic happens nonetheless in the way I least expect. Across the room, I seem to see her at last. Her eyes are dark, hair pin-curled. Fanny Ellen crosses her arms and yawns. She's standing on the other side of the conference table. She's standing in the yard of her house at the end of the wide creosoted bridge. She shakes her head, considering everything she's heard. Then she nods like she approves of me, approves of the books and books. She smiles, proud of the brown dress I'm wearing, the one that seems to say I haven't forgotten who I am. Though there are miles and miles and a thousand and one nights between me and the people I come from. She holds her arms out, palms up. Come on, girl, she says. She hopes I will be able to figure out the best thing to say in the short time I have left. Tell them, she says. She waits, looking at me patiently. Tell them, she says, how to build the bridge you need most, the one back to your own self. (laughs)